You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It was in her speech at the 218 Golden Globe ceremony that Oprah Winfrey said a phrase that has become basically the mantra or motto of postmodernism. And so when she stood up to give her speech, she said this, speaking your truth is the most powerful weapon we have. And what followed that is in the eyes of many, this emphasis now, not on the truth, but your truth. And somewhere along the way, we have subtly in our culture replaced an understanding of an objective truth to now truth being very subjective and simply personal. And as she put it, speaking your truth is the greatest weapon we have. Well, you notice in this section in the Sermon on the Mount now, Jesus deals with the issue of truthfulness. And in a sense, what Jesus does, because he is the truth, that he speaks with all authority on the truth. And so Jesus will confront two failures in his day, which I think we can readily see a connection to our own present day. And the first failure that Jesus is going to confront head on here is this concern of truth decay and discipleship in marriage. In other words, we see truth being redefined today, remade into the image of the speaker. So how does truth decay and discipleship impact our understanding of marriage? Well, notice in verse 31, following the pattern we've seen since verse 21, uh, Jesus says, it was also said, or you have heard, And then gives this quote, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So how was marriage and divorce perceived in the culture of Jesus' day? If we go back to the first century, how how did they see this? What, What was the truth that they were teaching among the religious leaders about this? And and we find out that this quote that's mentioned here actually is an allusion to Deuteronomy 24. So in Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, God gives to Moses a command about a certificate of divorce 
that needed to be issued if there was going to be the dissolution of a marriage. But what had happened in Jesus's day is the interpretation and application of that became a very controversial matter. And so there are two major Jewish schools of interpretation that developed, out of which you would have had the scribes and the Pharisees claiming different allegiances to. So Jesus, like today, is answering a very sensitive subject, especially because we know in the church today, you certainly have cases of people being remarried. You have cases of people being divorced. It, it's a subject you can't just avoid. We, we need to understand, what does scripture say about this? So as I said, in the first century, two schools of thought developed. One is called the school of Shammai, and the other is called the school of Hillel. They're each named after famous rabbis. And, and so the school of Shammai said that there was only one grounds for divorce, and that was adultery or sexual unfaithfulness, that that was the one grounds, the only grounds. But then the school of Hillel said that, no, that's not correct, that Moses must have been allowed to grant this certificate of divorce uh, because there are many different reasons why a divorce may be necessary. And so the school of Hillel had a very wide and liberal understanding for the grounds of divorce. That became the predominant interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 in the time of Christ. In other words, the majority of your rabbis would say there are numerous grounds and reasons for why a divorce is not just permittable, but is allowed and almost approved, they would argue by God. To give you an idea of just how, how absurd this became, uh, in the Mishnah, which is rabbinic writings, interpretations, where they're applying this principle, um, in Jesus's day, remember, divorce was, was only something a man could initiate in the first century. And according to the Mishnah, uh, a man could divorce his wife, one, if she, if she spoiled or overcooked the meal, that, that was a grounds he could divorce her. It, it, it got so narrowed down that you had statements like this in the Mishnah. If you felt your wife had a misshaped head, you could divorce her. Uh, if you felt that she had a pug nose, you could divorce her. And so this is the culture that Jesus now is saying, let me interpret correctly. What was the context of Moses's certificate of divorce that was clearly commanded by God. And if we fast forward it to today, we realize that there is much truth decay when it comes to marriage and divorce. So we have now no-fault divorces, which implies either party is not really at fault. It just didn't work out for whatever reasons. You can now go online and get your divorce for $139. Uh, you can also do a do-it-yourself divorce, uh, assuming there's nothing that's being contested between parties. Now, it's very important to realize Jesus is speaking strongly about marriage. 
and, and the implications of divorce in relationship to marriage. Now, divorce, as, as many of you know, is not the unforgivable sin, but it is a sin that has ramifications to it. And that's really what Jesus is going to clarify here, because he'll give us the proper context of what was that command that Moses gave involving a certificate of divorce. And, and if you were to go back and look at the context, you see that when God granted this, it was not to give permission for divorce to happen on any grounds. It was actually to regulate the sin of divorce, but not to give license to pursuing a divorce. And this is where the religious leaders lost sight of that purpose of this allowance. It, it was not, again, giving a license for people to have a divorce for whatever reasons, but it was meant to regulate the abuses that were happening. Because you can clearly indicate that in the past, you, you had men just choosing to divorce a wife and that left her often destitute in that culture. There, there was no social safety net for her. Uh, there was no ability for her to financially um, make a living, uh, provide for herself. So she was pretty much forced to either return to her home, her family, and hope they had enough finances to support her, or she was left to maybe just simply beg and live on the streets. So in that context, we see Jesus clarifying what Moses said and what God intended that to be. But look at verse 32, because the teaching that Jesus gives here is based on the design of marriage. So in verse 32, Jesus says, but I say, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you have this reminder that if a divorce occurs, not on the grounds of sexual unfaithfulness, or according to 1 Corinthians 7, or literally the one spouse just abandons the believer and doesn't want to do anything, to restore the marriage, that any other grounds, there's a sin that happens. And that sin is now compounded if one simply just looks to remarry. And if we look at statistics, most people who get divorced do remarry. So again, I, I wanna say that in the context, because I know this is close to home for many here, that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But it's saying we should realize that divorce only ever happens when one or both partners do not live up to the vows they have taken before God. And so Jesus now refers to, well, why is it so serious? Because there's a design in marriage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. And I mentioned to you that this was a controversial issue among the Jewish leaders as to, you know, what did that mean when Moses issued a certificate of divorce? Well, you see this comes back up again to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And in this section, you notice in Matthew 19 verse 1, it says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, 
he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, knowing it is a controversial and sensitive subject, this question would immediately put Jesus not only to, to pick which school of interpretation is he going with, but, but in a no-win situation. Because if he says, well, he goes with the school of Hillel, then they'll say, well, then you're, you're not taking seriously what Moses said. And if he goes with the other school, they'll say, well, that's contradicting that God said here you can do a certificate of divorce. Look how Jesus responded in verses four through six. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes them back, not to the words of Moses, but takes them all the way back to Genesis 2, 24. And says, look at the design of marriage. What, what God has brought together, let not man separate or tear asunder. And then we know you have the Apostle Paul reminding us that, that marriage is also significant, not just because it's a divine institution, but it's a picture to us of Christ's union with the church. And so in Ephesians 5, you have Paul talking about, you know, the responsibility of husbands, love your wives, wives respect your husbands. And, and then all of a sudden he says, and the mystery I'm talking about is Christ in the church. So we have this design in marriage that brings us back to not defining marriage the way our culture wants to define it or your version or your truth as to what marriage is and its significance, but stepping back and saying, well, what does the one who said he is the truth say about truth decay and discipleship and marriage? In other words, for every follower of Christ, our marriages are an opportunity for us to, to serve God in, glorify God, and help present an accurate depiction of Christ's relationship with his church. But if you come back to Matthew chapter 5, you, you probably notice that there's a break in paragraphs in most Bibles between verse 32 and then verses 33 through 37, which might make us sort of think that they really are not related. But I think that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce has everything to do with the next section that he transitions into. Because those divisions we've put there to kind of make it a little more readable, but, but I don't think we should disconnect what Jesus is saying about discipleship and marriage to the second failure Jesus is going to address, and that is truth decay and discipleship in daily life. In other words, now he moves from not just following Christ in, in your marriage, but what does it look like to follow Christ 
in daily life, to follow Christ in our conversations. And so you notice verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So now we're moving into the subject of, of oaths and, and, and swearing something and promising that you will tell the truth. Uh, and I don't think it takes us much to realize, well, oaths and vows and promising something, that, that's what the marriage vows are. And so building on that previous discussion, Jesus deals with this problem in his own day where redefining the truth has become the norm. In other words, it wasn't as cleverly said, well, here's your truth, here's my truth. But in reality, that's what not just the majority of the people were doing, but they were taking that lead from the religious leaders. In other words, if you look at verse 33, uh, the religious leaders agreed that you should not swear falsely. In other words, you should not commit perjury. Uh, that if you were in some kind of legal setting, you have a requirement to be truthful, to not commit perjury. And we've seen sort of this similar line with, you know, have you committed adultery? Well, no, I haven't done the act, so the thought doesn't count. Uh, I haven't committed murder because I didn't do the act, and the thought doesn't count. Well, now they're going to, to see a failure on their part to connect a legal setting from just everyday conversations. And so you notice here that to swear simply means an, an oath to place yourself under an oath. So what is Jesus actually saying here? What, what does Jesus need to clarify in terms of what is true and what is right? And it reveals a problem that was going on. So if you go on to verse 34, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So typically an oath is always sworn to one that is greater than yourself, a higher authority. Well, Jesus reveals in verse 34 a clever manipulation of terms that became a part of his culture. Uh, in other words, you could say you would do something, and you could even swear and put it under oath, I will do this. But if you didn't say precisely certain words, you could get out of not doing that and claim that you didn't lie. In other words, a, a verbal gymnastics here by which they could always outmaneuver themselves from keeping their word. And, and so we see this come up and clarified for us. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, Jesus references these different ways that they would say, well, you know, you can swear by this, but that's not as binding as if you said, I'll do this based on this. So in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, 
Jesus is going through a series of woes. He's pronouncing judgments on the scribes and the Pharisees. And you notice in verse 16 through 22, Jesus pronounces a woe on their truth decay and, and their lack of righteousness when it comes to their conversations. So we pick up in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So what Jesus is doing, he's parsing out and exposing to them. You can't say, well, I said I would do this and I said I would do it in the name of the temple. But I didn't say I'd do it in the name of the gold in the temple. In other words, it is a lie to claim that you will do this and then you don't do it. And, and this reflects back on the righteousness of God, which is to be reflected in those who are following him. So we have this challenge here, as probably most Americans would say, that while telling the truth is important, but there are times it's okay to lie. And, and we find people talking about, well, it's a white lie. You know, right? it's, it, you know it's, it's permissible to lie if it's going to spare someone's feelings. And, and so we rationalize the importance of truthfulness. And that's a natural result when we have taken the truth and now redefined it and packaged it as your truth and my truth. That that affects discipleship in marriage, and it affects discipleship now as it should look in our conversations. So return with me to Matthew chapter 5, and, and let us look maybe more carefully, then what is Jesus actually saying we should do? So you may be aware of the fact that the Quakers, Anabaptists, and history interpreted this to mean you should never take any kind of oath like never even take a legal oath in, in a courtroom. Uh, and I don't believe Jesus is, in this case, prohibiting legal oaths. In fact, you have God swearing based on himself because he is the greatest authority. He places himself under an oath of his own character. Jesus Christ responded to oaths. And Paul, at different times in his letters, puts himself under an oath. So what Jesus is dealing with here is not that there's not a proper place for legal oaths, but your word should be your word. Whether or not you put it in the form of an oath or simply stated, this is what I will do or this is what I will not do. In other words, if we are to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
simplicity and truthfulness of speech should mark our life. That, that we're not guilty of playing verbal gymnastics here. You know, not saying, oh, we'll do this, but then saying, well, you know, I, I didn't promise I would do it. I just meant I would try to do it. Uh, we can probably think back as maybe younger kids, you know, where someone would be, well, I, I said I would do that, but I didn't say, cross my heart and hope I die. Like, like we put all these other stipulations that would make it, well, that's what a real promise is. But Jesus is breaking through all that and saying, as a follower of Christ, that what you say matters. And you should mean what you say. It should matter to you to be truthful, to be simple. As Jesus kind of says there, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, you don't have to cloak it in an official oath. If you say you will do this, if you say you will follow Christ, be true to that. And, and don't mix or mince words. And so if we were to go through other places in scripture, we are reminded of how truthfulness in our words is a critical element of following God and being obedient to God. Let me, let me give you some examples here. Uh, in Proverbs 8, it says, uh, my mouth will utter truth. So we are committing ourselves to speaking truth because God is the God of truth. And we love God and we love God's word. In Zechariah 8, 16, it says, speak the truth and render judgments that are true. This, this should be a hallmark of, of not just our officials, but, but it should be a hallmark of, of every Christian. In our daily relationship in our marriage, in our communication with our spouse, but also in our communication with others in the church others in the community, uh, in the workplace. Uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we know that does not mean literally only responding in yes or no, but it means let, let your words be chosen carefully. Let them not be some kind of deceptive way of, of giving you an out on something, but state what you will do and be consistent with that. We also have a reminder twice in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that, that we are to speak the truth in love. Now, in English, that's broken down into speak the truth in love, four words. But, but you could literally interpret that as Christians, we should be truthing it with one another. Speaking what is reality, what is an agreement with God's word. And then turn with me to James chapter 5, James 5 and verse 12. In James 5, you have a series of really tests. How, how can you tell if you're a genuine believer that your faith is authentic? But you get to James chapter 5 and verse 12, and you have a restatement here of almost exactly the words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 12, we read, but above all my brothers, do not swear or take an oath, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall 
under condemnation. In other words, what the Pharisees were doing and what we could argue today in, a, in an age of truth decay is we've not just redefined the truth, uh, but we've fallen under condemnation when we do that. Because there is only one objective truth. There can be different opinions on certain things, but there's only one true reality. And so the most powerful tool that, that you and I have as believers is not your truth, but God's truth. And that truth should permeate down into our understanding of marriage, into our understanding of divorce, into our understanding of the importance of everyday life and conversations. Uh, that we would be known as a people who mean what we say because we say what we mean because we follow the one who is the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to be conformed to this world, uh, to find ourselves so accepting of this revising of truth. And so when we go back to your word, may we be driven back to Jesus's proper interpretation as to what these words mean. Thank you that in Christ, we have the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.